Walk, believer, walk, Daniel. Walk, believer, walk, Daniel. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Finan's Wake. The purpose of this segment is once a week, at the end of each week, to recapitulate the three most important news stories of the past seven days, the three most consequential events to have happened in America and abroad, of which, no matter how busy you are, you'll want to be apprised. It's my humble aim to bring that awareness to you as concisely, honestly, and eloquently as I can. I know how limited and precious your time is, and just how quickly it disappears. I also know how much there is to know these days, and the difficulty in finding a dispassionate and reliable source from whom to get good information. My goal is to give you this information, and to leave you just a bit more enlightened than you were when you came. Today, we'll cover the following three news items. Number one, unrest in Akron after the release of police footage. Number two, a mass shooting carried out in Highland Park and uh, an averted mass shooting in Richmond, Virginia. And number three, Boris Johnson steps down and Shinzo Abe is shot down. First, unrest in Akron after the release of police footage. The city of Akron, Ohio, was visited by protesters in a few nights of unrest when, after a week's delay, law enforcement officials decided to release traffic and body cam footage of the recent killing of Jalen Walker. Walker, a 25-year-old black man, was shot dead by Akron police on the night of the 27th of June. A passing glance at almost every headline written by the corporate press, in whom, if it need be said, our faith is every day fading, will inform you that Walker was, like too many of his slain brethren, unarmed. Technically, I suppose, at the very moment of his death, this is correct. Walker wasn't actively wielding his gun when, upon his exit from the passenger side of his moving vehicle, officers discharged over 60 rounds, a prodigious amount into which, in the weeks to come, use of force experts will surely be inquiring. But it obfuscates the relevant circumstances by which his totally preventable and unnecessary killing was preceded. And yet, if the typical news outlets to which we're encouraged to subscribe had their way, you'd know but two things about this sad encounter. One, that Walker was black. And two, that he died unarmed. Over the first part, there's little dispute. Walker was certainly black, but that he was unarmed is a deliberately misleading statement upon which some light must be shed. Allow me to shed it. The ultimately fatal interaction between Walker and the police began, as is so often the case, innocently enough. For having committed a routine traffic violation, police officers attempted to pull Walker over. So far, no problem. 
Who among us hasn't driven too quickly and aroused the lawman's attention? But Walker refused to pull over. In open defiance of the officer's signals and commands, he zoomed off, leading the officers to pursue him at high speed. This, I think we can all agree, is an unwise response. The unwisdom only worsened when, according to the video evidence, Walker thrust his arm out the driver's side window and fired his gun back at the police. That's what the video seems to indicate, and he did this while driving. By this brazen act, this incautious and daring first salvo, the police officers were unsurprisingly unnerved. A routine traffic stop had, in very short order, devolved into a high-speed chase of an armed man who was daring enough to fire his gun back at pursuing officers. Given his response, one might naturally conclude that Walker was engaged in some type of criminal behavior for which he'd rather not be detained and, in the later presence of a judge, made to answer. This, it seems, was the police officer's conclusion. Why else would he respond in this way? And so they called for backup, and eventually Walker was cornered. Still, though, even when the numbers weren't to his advantage, he refused to surrender. He veered from the main street and continued driving on a byway next to a park. Without bringing his vehicle to a complete stop, Walker then leapt out from the passenger's door. He then tried to flee the officers on foot. As an officer at whom, mind you, Walker had already shown a willingness to shoot, you'd expect him, at this point, to be running away while holding his gun. As it turns out, though, he left the weapon in the car, rendering him technically unarmed. Multiple officers gave chase, and at least one attempted to subdue him with his taser. Sadly, this failed. All of a sudden, Walker turned toward them. After fleeing a routine traffic stop, leading police on a high-speed chase, firing his weapon back at them during the pursuit, leaping out of his moving vehicle when cornered, running away on foot, ignoring all commands to relent, Walker pivoted and turned toward the officers at which point, faced with an intractable and dangerous suspect, they fired their weapons. In all, over 60 rounds were discharged, a quantity for which I can't say there was an obvious need. That said, I'm no expert on the use of force, certainly not the excessive use of force, and this doesn't appear to have been a situation that called for, how shall I say, uh, parsimony. There were, as we know, multiple officers on the scene, uh, between whom many weapons were, as a consequence of Walker's actions, drawn. Protesters, among whom the relations of Jacob Blake and Brianna Taylor were numbered, descended on Akron to voice their displeasure with Walker's unwarranted killing. That the killing was unfortunate and avoidable is a conclusion at which I think we'd all mutually arrive. That it was, in their words, unwarranted, and yet another example of police misconduct leading to the death of an innocent black man is so far as I can tell, unsupported by the simple facts of the case. 
And yet, as if in stone, the narrative is already written. But we might reflect, if only momentarily, on just how easily these sad endings could be obviated, could be avoided. Compliance. As a rule, as a person, it's my preference to be non-compliant. For better or worse, the spirit of a contrarian animates me. But when a police officer issues me a command to which, reflexively, I have no great desire to acquiesce, I govern my passions and follow his orders. If I'm the wrongful subject of his attention, well, that can be sorted out later. It does no one any good to defy him and, in so doing, risk death. Our second story, a mass shooting carried out in Highland Park and an averted mass shooting in Richmond, Virginia. On Monday, the 4th of July, a mass shooter opened fire on an Independence Day parade in the town of Highland Park, an affluent suburb located about 30 miles outside Chicago, Illinois. Of the 46 people shot, seven were killed. The youngest victim was eight, while the eldest was nearly 90 years of age. The killer seems to have been impartial to the ethnicity of those whom he killed. Some were of Mexican, others of Jewish ancestry. It mattered not whence they came, nor to whom they prayed. Not quite 15 minutes into the parade, which began at approximately 10 o'clock in the morning, this young man, 21 years of age, opened fire on the unsuspecting crowd of patriots and neighbors below, upon whom, from some high, undetectable place, a hail of fury showered. Situated atop a building overlooking the street, to which he gained access via a fire escape ladder, the shooter wielded a Smith & Wesson M&P 15 semi-automatic rifle. After emptying nearly three 30-round magazines, he descended the roof on which he was perched and, in the guise of a woman, slipped unnoticed into the frantic scene of which he was the cause. Behind him, on the roof, he left three magazines and 83 spent shell casings. As for his gun, surveillance video showed its being dropped, inadvertently, as the subject, uh, suspect, I should say, ran away from the carnage. Once in the clear, he continued on to his mother's home, located within a walking distance of the site of the parade. And once there... He availed himself of his mother's car and drove away. An alert and thoughtful member of the community noticed his departure, his hasty departure, and, uh, with alacrity all his own, contacted law enforcement. The shooter was relatively quickly spotted en route to Madison, Wisconsin, detained and brought into police custody, under which he'll stay until his trial. The shooter, accompanied by a second rifle in his mother's car, seems to have planned a second shooting at another location, possibly in Madison, uh, possibly at another Independence Day parade, a plan about which investigators are trying to learn more. As it stands, he's been charged with seven counts of murder. As to the motivation of his attack, the shooter has been unforthcoming, 
It's not yet known exactly why he did such an evil, unspeakable thing. By all evidence, though, he was a deeply troubled, if not thoroughly deranged individual, desperate in his search for attention or infamy. Sometimes the latter begets the former. In pursuit of his aim, he posted on social media multiple grisly rap videos in which he depicted himself killing or being killed. In 2019, he threatened to kill everyone in his family, at which point the police were prompted to confiscate his unsettling cache of swords, 16 knives, a dagger, and a samurai blade. They were kept in his closet. Hours later, his father reclaimed them and brought them back home. He had no criminal history of which to speak, but as we learn more about his life, there seems to have been no dearth of the proverbial red flags. And yet, what are we to do when we overlook their waving? The homicidal derangement of one deeply troubled individual, in addition to the general disregard of the many and various red flags of which he seems to have given people ample and nearly constant opportunity to take notice, resulted in yet another horrific mass shooting. Sometimes the uh, well-intentioned rules and regulations, including limitations on weaponry and ammunition to which a gun owner can have access, and the establishment and more importantly, the enforcement of red flag laws by which psychologically unstable people, almost always young men, can be monitored and, when necessary, institutionalized, fail where the simplicity of an alert and brave citizen succeeds. This was the case in Richmond, Virginia, where, during another Independence Day parade, two men planned to carry out their own mass shooting. According to Breitbart News, uh, quote, the Richmond Police Department announced the arrests of Guatemalan nationals 52-year-old Julio Alvaro Duban and 38-year-old Roman Balacarcel Ac for allegedly plotting a mass shooting at the city's July 4th celebration. End quote. Uh, neither of the men was an American citizen, is an American citizen. In fact, Ak, the younger of the two, is a twice-deported illegal alien, according to uh, American records. He was deported back to Guatemala in 2013 and 2014. I suppose there's something to be said for his persistence. Another gruesome atrocity on the day on which we celebrate our liberty, no less, was averted when an alert citizen overheard the two men discussing their heinous plan. He then informed the authorities who, with all promptness, detained the pair. Again, according to Breitbart, quote, the police proceeded to search Duban's residence, in which two rifles, a handgun, and over 300 rounds of ammunition were found. For his misbehavior, Duban has been booked in the Richmond City Jail on a $15,000 bail. And third, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson steps down and former Japanese uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, is shot down. In the span of one week, we've seen the collapse of two of the most prominent political leaders of the past five years. Boris Johnson, Great Britain's Prime Minister, 
stepped down from his post as the Conservative Party's leader, while Shinzo Abe, who was, until just a year ago, or two years ago, Japan's iconic prime minister was shot down, dead, while giving a campaign speech. I mention the former's resignation because, in the ever-changing fickle tides of Anglo-American relations, it could have an unsteadying effect. Note, just because Johnson has stepped down from his role as the leader of the Conservative Party does not mean he's abdicated his title of prime minister, though his removal from that position is likely forthcoming. Johnson, an American-born Brit, succeeded one of Great Britain's more forgettable prime ministers, Theresa May, a somewhat bland, uninspiring woman by whose general ineptitude during the Brexit crisis and of whose lack of charm in all her public appearances, the good people of that ancient land had grown increasingly frustrated and weary. Johnson, an alumnus of Eton and then Oxford, an editor of The Spectator magazine and then the mayor of London, was the fresh, quick-witted, classically read, endearingly eccentric, thoughtfully disheveled flavor after which so many in Britain hungered. Overall, as Prime Minister, he governed capably. He negotiated and finalized Great Britain's departure from the European Union, Brexit as it came colloquially to be known. He strengthened ties with his country of birth, America. He stabilized the economy, and he made a good showing on the world stage. Uh, but a pile of scandals, some serious, some trivial, caused his undoing. Most of these stem from his handling of the COVID pandemic, to which he responded with unduly strict measures, of which, unsurprisingly, he was often found to be in contravention. He often subverted his own rules. Rules for thee, of course, but not for me. Uh, a maxim that was repeated across the world for two straight years. In his case, it was wine and cheese parties for me and not for thee. That seems to have been the message from Town 10 Downing Street, excuse me. There were also some controversies, including members of his cabinet, uh, one of whom had a propensity to um, touch without being invited uh, men at a local bar. Now, technically, Johnson is still the prime minister, the prime minister of Great Britain, uh, but that soon will change. On to Abe. Shinzo Abe, while delivering a speech in the industrial city of Nara in southern Japan, was shot in the torso. The shot, discharged, so far as I can tell, from a homemade, crudely constructed musket, proved lethal. It lodged in the former Japanese prime minister's unassuming, unprotected chest, through which it tore and spread its many wicked little shotgun pellets. Abe, in extremis, proceeded to stagger forward, slump over, and finally collapse. His security detail, by whom, in all frankness, he wasn't particularly well guarded, quickly pounced on the assassin who stood just a few meters away to his rear. Two big, conspicuous plumes of smoke announced the close position of the gunman and the strange musket from which the fatal shot rang. The event, as all events are, was captured on film. To watch a man be assassinated is an abnormal thing. 
I'll never get over this fact. But in today's day and age, it's expected. Uh, the capturing of it, not necessarily the assassination itself. Uh, Abe, who retired from public office less than a year ago on account of his health, was, by any metric, an exceedingly popular and successful leader. He was, at the time of his retirement, Japan's longest-serving prime minister. Had it not been for the gastrointestinal difficulties and abdominal pains by which he was afflicted, he's known to have suffered from a severe case of uh, ulcerative colitis, it's likely he'd still be stationed atop the Japanese diet. NPR, the left-leaning government-funded network for which you and I and all honest taxpayers are, for some reason quite beyond my comprehension, still paying, declared Abe a, quote, divisive arch-conservative. This is how they described the man in their initial tweet by which they hoped, in but a few carefully chosen characters, to capture his life and memorialize his death. I don't think NPR intended the word arch as an honorific, in the way that we elevate and exalt archbishops and archdioceses. The purpose of the prefix arch is, in this context, to cast upon its bearer an unfavorable shadow, an unsightly blemish with which to befoul one's reputation. Think about it. You have an enemy, and then you have an arch-enemy. To whom are you more hostile? That Abe was, in NPR's opinion, an arch-conservative is supposed to be, on the final record of this man, an everlasting demerit. When it comes to headline eulogies, though, left-wing media operations are famously indelicate, if not outright propagandistic. Thus, we have the infamous and almost ridiculous example of the Washington Post calling the ISIS terrorist Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi an, quote, austere religious scholar, when arch-Islamist would have been fitting, and the AP celebrating Venezuela's Hugo Chavez as a, quote, fiery leader, when arch-communist dictator might have more accurately applied. If Abe was divisive, and what politician isn't, it was only because he didn't completely resign himself to the prevailing left-wing orthodoxies by which the West has been at once intoxicated and undone. His economics were, for the most part, liberal. The portmanteau abonomics, or abonomics, sprang from his unique trifold approach that comprised monetary easing by the, the Bank of Japan, fiscal stimulus through government spending, and structural reforms. Abenomics is, uh, not unlike Bidenomics, an outgrowth of Keynes, that is, John Maynard Keynes. The towering English economist by whom deficit spending and government intervention were championed, no matter the cost. Perhaps the hostility toward Abe finds its source in his nationalistic bent. He was a fierce defender of Japan, especially at a time of increasingly bold Chinese depredations just across the sea. By whom Abe was shot, his assassin, was quickly apprehended. A 41-year-old veteran, he was unemployed and obviously displeased with the former prime minister. Beyond this, we've still much to learn about the man.
that he wielded a homemade shotgun. Japan has very tight restrictions on the private citizen's ownership of guns, whose initial shot widely missed its mark, leads me to think this wasn't an especially highly trained agent carrying out the murderous will of a hostile regime. He may have simply been a crazed political zealot, the type of whom, here in the U.S., uh, we have no dearth of examples. The world is very curious to learn of his motivations, and there's much for which Abe's security detail has to answer. The fact that no one was actively watching his back, a commonplace phrase, I know, is inexcusable. An error for which, in this case, a country's beloved political leader is now dead. Finally, we arrive at that segment for which all of America impatiently waits each and every week the quote of the week. This week's quote comes to us from Tobias Mallet, a Scottish novelist and poet by whom the great Charles Dickens was uh, greatly inspired. He said, quote, I think for my part, one half of the nation is mad, and the other not very sound. I think, in our own age, we can sympathize with Smollett's assessment of his countrymen and the soundness of their mind, and perhaps the morality of their character. And with that, we've come to the conclusion of this week's installment of Finneran's Wake a Concise Recap. If you found it enlightening, entertaining, enjoyable, delightful, or simply worthy of your attention, please subscribe to this channel, leave on it a five-star review, and most importantly, share it with your friends. That's the best way to get this episode out and before a wider public. And with that, I bid you farewell from Finneran's Wake.